Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's going on, Geek Vibes Nation? This is senior critic Larry Freed, and I am uh, humbled, excited, uh, freaking out. So many words to use to uh, welcome two of the leading creative voices behind HBO's The Last of Us for uh, today's edition of the Geek Vibes Nation podcast. Uh, we have cinematographer for episodes three, four, and five, Evan Bolter, and the editor for episodes three, four, and five, as well as a, a number of other episodes for the series, Tim Good. Guys, welcome to the nation. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, Larry. We're so happy to be here. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. So uh, before we even talk about the show, I first want to talk about you two for a second, because full transparency for the audience, when I reached out to Eben to do an interview about the show, he was like, oh, yeah, super excited. You know what? I have to, I have to rope Tim into this, because like we've been meaning to do a podcast for a while. And first of all, awesome. Second of all, I I did not expect that a cinematographer and an editor for the show would have this kind of kinship together because they are such two different parts of the process. And so I just wanted to know, like, did you guys have a friendship already going into the series? Uh, and if so, what was that relationship for you two like as the episodes were being shot and then brought into post and all of that? And, you know, Evan, we can we can start with you. Um, yeah, so it's, it's true. I mean, like the, the, the DP edit relationship is a really interesting one because I think both of us feel like we're the right hand person to the director. Um, it's almost like we sort of share them at two different stages of the whole. And then we have this like wonderful crossover period in the middle, which is the shoot. So usually for prep and the shoot, I, I sort of am with the director at all times. And then the editor kind of comes on, hopefully, to be editing during the shoot and sort of starts their relationship. And then obviously in post, completely takes over. So I, I disappear in post. I, I'm, I'm, I'm gone. I'm not getting paid anymore. Right. <laughs> um, and that's obviously when editors really step up and become a leader of the show. So um, it's always been a relationship that's like fascinates me as we, we sort of get separated. And I've always tried to have good relationships with editors and stay in touch because there are so many little, little things that can get missed or, or intentions or questions. And sometimes it's good that we can chat directly and it's not always sort of through someone in the middle. Um, 
so yeah, it, it's an incredibly important creative relationship that doesn't always flourish the way I think it should. Um, but on The Last of Us, I didn't know a single person on this job going in. Wow. So, so not just Tim was, was new to me, but Peter, the director, was new. All the producers, everyone. I mean, I, I really was like, I was the only, I was just me. I flew to Canada with my family, um, started the job. Uh, Peter, the director of episode three, actually joined after me. Um, and then I was introduced to Tim and away we went. And it was it was really wonderful. Yeah. So, Tim, when did you meet Evan? Do you recall that first meeting? Absolutely. It was uh, they were filming uh, one of the scenes. I was sort of flown into Calgary uh, and it was probably day two um, or day three of the of the filming. And they were out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, nowhere. Calgary was amazing. (laughs) Um, And they were filming this uh, the sequence in episode three. Um, where they f- discover the bodies and all of the skeletons. And so I literally walk into a tent and there's Peter Hoare, who I knew tangentially through the Umbrella Academy because he did the uh, pilot episode as the director. Ah, and I was a series yes. editor on that. So there were a couple pickup scenes that they did that he had directed. And uh, so I was uh, able to cut those. And uh, so knowing Peter and knowing his sort of style and his m- immense level of you know taste level, uh, and his work on It's a Sin, the HBO series, I was like, okay, this is going to be amazing. And then immediately I meet Evan in the tent and he's just like, we need to do this and we need to do that. And I'm like, oh, I like this guy already. I like him so much. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's passionate. He's always got that hat and I love it. Um, <laughs> it's like his signature. And, and I'm, I'm meeting everyone for the first time in that tent at that very moment. I'm meeting Craig Mason. I'm meeting Jack Lesko. I'm meeting Chris Roos, the script supervisor. I mean, everybody is there. And I'm sort of like overwhelmed because I've just literally landed and they just right. roped me over and they said, oh, you'll drive. And I'm like, ah, okay, sure. Um, but that was, that was how I first met them. And I was immediately inspired just by seeing the, the, the work that they were doing on that day. I was like, oh, this is, this is something. So, and I knew right, right then and there what the aesthetic was uh, starting to look like. And so, uh, Eben is the cinematographer for episodes three, four, and five. Was there any discussion in that initial meeting of like the episode? Was there like ever, was Eben, were you like talking to Tim already and being like, okay, I know how some of this edit's going to feel. I know about any of that. Uh, maybe and maybe not even then. Maybe when you were shooting further stuff, were you texting Tim and were like, "Dude, we got this great shot today, and I know how this is going to get edited." Or was there? What did you sort of have a trust in Tim that he was going to sort of go off and take what you got and and you know make something great out of it? Yes. Yeah, so, so my, I guess I mean I actually uh, haven't really thought about this for a while, but I used to maybe ten years ago doing independent movies. I used to get actually, to be honest, frustrated with the edit because I would shoot things in such a specific way for the edit with the director and then uh, lose touch with all of that and then get to the edit and be frustrated that it wasn't what I thought it should be. And, and I had this probably out of, out of touch ego for this is how it should have been. And, uh, you know. and what I've realized more and more now is that what's important is that on the day we have intention. So we are making decisions and we do have a reason for the way we're approaching something. But there's so much that goes on between that moment and what 
and the bigger picture, you know, not just how is this scene playing in the episode, not just in runtime, but in the season overall, have we had too many moments like that? Has this really clever idea that we've got on the morning been done three times before? There's so much more to it than, than the here and now. So I think I've just learned more and more to, to always try and make decisions and, and have intention, but at the same time, leave space for mm-hmm. things to change. So I, I used to be the sort of person who'd say, okay, if we're doing this as a one, let's just commit, let's do nothing else. Let's give them no option, but to use our perfect one, which is so dumb. It's truly <laughs> dumb. I mean, it's, it's a thing that, that is, is usually, you know, the, the great one, even if it's great, um, you could speed it up a bit or blah, blah, blah. So now I, I'm like, okay, maybe it's a one, let's do that. But let's also, throw this in and throw this in so that the editor has time. So it's kind of a mix of both. It, it, it's, I, I want to have, I want to give intention, want to give options, but also want Tim to have space to do what he does best when he collects everything and looks at it as not just the scene, but as the overall episode. And Tim, was there any back and forth on your end once you were in post or was it sort of full steam ahead for, for you and uh, showrunners? You know, it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating question because they kind of, I kind of was in my own little world because I'm, again, I'm not on the set. I'm not close to the set. Just that one day uh, when they're like, all right, you're going to have to like catch up at the end of the day with all the work that's already come in from the day before. And I'm like, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> and so that's really kind of it. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I remember, you know, I'm, I, I think of this relationship as kind of an encoder decoder kind of relationship. Like Eben is an encoder. He's encoding performance. He's encoding image he's encoding architecture and i am a decoder and that's sort of my responsibility is it goes through this sort of it comes to me and then i have to sort of decode the decisions that were happening and sort of make my own sort of uh uh my own i i bring my own feelings and my own sort of you know approach to it but at the same time i'm trying to decode why they went three times, why they went four times, why is the first one the print and why is the fourth one the print? What are the things about these two that are that make them happy? And so as an editor, in a way, I have to be a chameleon as well. I have to sort of like start to absorb the style. I have to start to absorb the pace. I have to start to absorb the the images and and sort of the inherent architecture that starts to reveal itself to me. Um, and that's how I've always done things i've done things that were very quick cutty 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 shows and those are their own thing and i would adapt and and and, and do that but in this specific show it was so, so the images in my mind were so again the intention behind them was so clear and so sort of thought out that i was going i don't need to make an edit in any of this stuff sometimes because even though i have the material i'll give you an example in episode three Joel and Ellie are walking, and that was that same day they, they filmed uh, where I was there. They're walking along, and he's telling the whole story of the outbreak. And mm-hmm. I had a couple pieces of of coverage in that uh, in case we needed to lose a section of it, because that's the other thing is you never know later on if someone says, right. actually, yeah. we don't want to, this story we cut out of the whole series. Mm. Uh, <laughs> what do we do? So, But we had some really beautiful pieces of coverage that would have allowed us to do that. But I kept just watching the, the, the shot and, and, you know, as an editor, my uh, my take on everything is always about energy and how I feel about a shot in any given moment. And so I watch it. And if I start to lose interest in a shot, 
I go, okay, what's going on? Why am I losing interest in the shot? Is it because of what they said? Is it because of what uh, the, the shot I'm on? And in these circumstances, I was seeing no reasons. And uh, I, I would say, I'm not paid by the edit. I'm paid for the story. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I found myself very much sort of um, learning about Eben's style and Peter Hoare's style and also Craig Mason's, you know, how he was translating the words into these performances. Uh, and so I, again, they sort of left me in this place to uh, be an osmosis person. I don't know what else you'd call that. Um, and I was just, <laughs> I was taking it all in. And as I was building it, uh, as I went, it was just, it became clearer and clearer to me that there was such a great plan and, and the decoding became a lot easier. You know, I do think we should take a moment to acknowledge that plan and talk a little bit about uh, Craig and Neil, who uh, I've I have been uh, obsessed with the companion podcast that they have been putting out with the show where they've been talking with Troy Baker about a lot of the details uh, behind their choices. And I just think that these two have such a as you're talking about them, they had such a vision for this right off the bat. And I was wondering if the both of you could speak a little bit to just, you know, what it was like working with them throughout this show and, you know, speak to that, maybe some specific moments in your mind of like, okay, these two had this moment and they sort of imparted onto me what they wanted and we just sort of went for it. And, and Evan, we can start with you. Yeah, my, um, same, <laughs> my journey, <laughs> I was like, I, I'm obsessed with the podcast. I love listening to the two of them speak. I, I, I was a, a day one player of the game on PlayStation 3. I, I've lived with this thing for a long time and hold it very dearly. And um, my sort of journey to answer that question started actually in my interview with Craig and Neil, where it was actually about, um, I was telling them how I would approach it and and hearing back that that was in line with what they had wanted. And Craig had this document that was like his pitch, his Bible for the show. And it was this just incredible, I think it was like a 130 page PDF of oh images and, <laughs> and like just what, what he was going to do to adapt it that he had made with Neil. Um, and it was just the most incredible, like heartening, um, wonderful document. As a fan of the game, it was just like, this is just it. This is gold dust. This is, they're doing everything I could possibly dream of and more in the best possible way. So that, that document was the real heart of it for me at the beginning. And I, I really feel like they really knew what they wanted from the very beginning. And, and I think Craig and Chernobyl and Neil and The Last of Us sort of mashed together made that document and made the series that everyone's now enjoying. Um, so it, yeah, for me, it was the interview. That's where I first was like, wow, they, they have this and I just want to hang on to it myself. <laughs> and, and Tim, I guess more specifically for you, how involved were Craig and Neil throughout the editing process? Were they sort of like over your shoulder for the entirety of it? Or was it kind of passing cuts back and forth? Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the really great part about working on this for me as an editor is was, this was the first time I was back in person uh, mm. as an editor. And they HBO had an incredibly great um, uh, safety protocols for COVID. Um, and we were testing constantly and doing self-checks every morning. So no one, I you know, we never got COVID in the office because it was, it was so well thought out. Um, and so I felt very safe going in there. I had no issues uh, going in there. And so during the process where I'm sort of alone with the uh, the dailies of every day that coming in, that's where they were leaving me alone because they were like, you have to have your own 
uh, experience with uh, the material. And also, I'm on the set and I can't do that because every day that I'm editing, they're also filming. So, you know, Craig is on right. uh, the set. He can't be editing. Um, sometimes he would say, hey, you know, on uh uh, after a, a show had turned in its director's cut, hey, maybe a Saturday we can hang out and you know take a look at this stuff. And I said, okay, great. Um, but working with Craig and and with Neil was, you know, the thing I love about both of them is that they're very they're so intelligent, but there's such a emotional sort of humanity to both of them that I, I honestly didn't expect. I didn't because I didn't know. I mean, I know how smart Craig is, but. And I know that he's very, uh, you know, ebullient and, um, but I wasn't expecting, like when I read that, uh, when he said to me, like, I watched the director's cut of episode three and he, you know, he's written about this, um, and I cried so hard it hurt. And I was like, oh my gosh. So, <laughs> wow. And that's when I was yeah. like, oh, this is a very, you know, feeling person. And Neil was, uh, uh similar, um, in, you know, he, he would tell us, he's like, I, I, when I saw your, uh, the, the work that you did, it made me cry. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And those are the kind of people I generally, you know, want to be closer to um, the people who feel deeply um, because I feel very deeply. And it's funny because as an editor, you're generally locked in a room. And I always find that, you know, editors in interior lives sort of inhabit the, the films that they make in, in small ways. Um, and so working with them uh, on, on the uh, sort of this was really just uh, it was so heartening to me and Craig during the post-production process was every day every day he would come in and he would say hey uh, let's work on this and he was such a great collaborator like as an editor he knows exactly what he's looking for but at the same time he doesn't micromanage and that's the that's that's a hard thing to do um, he will say to me all right I like what you're doing in this sequence now why don't you do it all from the perspective of Ellie and I'm gonna go away and I'm going to do my other podcast or I'm going to go talk to someone else and go look at some visual effect shots. And when I, and I, and I come back and I'll see what you've done and then we can adjust from there. So that was the, the sort of the joy of working with him in uh, post-production. And a sort of side note is he would host a Dungeons and Dragons night for post-production once a week. Oh, my goodness. And he just was like, oh. who wants to play? And I didn't know it at all. I, I, I don't know how I my nerddom did not make it through to that. But... <laughs> I, I started learning and he's an amazing dungeon master, of course. And he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to spend his nights like staying at the office and, and with his, his team, but that's what he would do. And we all became very close because of that. And the team worked extra hard because of the person that he is and the person that Neil is. We felt that they had put their whole hearts into this. And so we would, we had to do the same. I mean, that's how you build camaraderie right there. Love yeah. that. Dungeons and Dragons. Amazing. Amazing. What, uh, what, what, do you remember your character at all? Class? Of course I do. My character, <laughs> my character was a, uh, a dwarf and his name Love was it. Burley McPherce. Oh, <laughs> what a D and D name. If I've ever heard one, the last question I have about this kind of relationship, Evan, did you see any cuts before the premiere of, of these episodes? And, and what was your reaction to seeing Tim's work in sort of those earlier cuts, if you saw them? Yeah, well, I, I saw, let me think. I, I saw an early cut of episode three, um, and it was the best early cut I'd ever seen. I, I said that <laughs> to you, Tim. He, he did. Um, it truly felt finished. Um, and it, it changed 
but I couldn't tell you now how it changed. There's nothing missing that's that's wow. missed. There's nothing, uh, and you know, I and and I've said this to Tim before, but like the thing I just love about Tim's um, edits is they feel they feel sort of not just effortless, but they feel like there's no other way to cut it. That's the best way I can put it. I never feel that anything's being forced and I never feel that there's like any gimmicks happening. It just feels like, it feels almost like inevitable. Like, of course that's how it's cut because how else could it be cut? Um, even though the truth is there's a lot of work that gets it to that point and there's a million different ways these things could go, but they just never feel like heavy handed. There's a real sort of gentle, this is just correct to it that I just absolutely love. And that's so rare. So so rare. I, I've never I've never had just a rough cut screen like that before. Usually a rough cut, I kind of walk out of it sort of shaking my head and phoning my agent. And <laughs> That's what everyone's deciding if say. I still want to be a DP anymore. <laughs> like it's it can be like kind of crushing actually. Um, on this uh, for episode three, it was not that at all. It was wonderful. Yeah. Tim, did you all do you also have uh, those uh, post first assembly cut experiences where you like you know never want to edit anything ever again after seeing a first draft <laughs> i've heard a lot of experiences like that where people are like they'll they'll that first cut is like the 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 hardest because they're they, it's they're still having to like chisel everything down i am a perfectionist oh, okay. and i so over and i answer. and i work very 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 i i put all of myself in any project i do no matter what it is and so i've never had that feeling because i love wow. everything i work on um, and so when I put it out, I, I always say to myself, if this had to go on the air tonight, I'd be okay with that. And wow. it's hard to do yeah. that because it means you have to go and you have to investigate every option. You have to investigate every possibility. Um, and over time, and I have the experience now over the last 20 years of, done, of having do it, done this, I generally have learned when I've gone too far, when I've over, uh, you know, tried to be too to editorial and I've learned how to relax into the story uh, and how to tell a story in a way that is, it creates a curiosity in, in the audience as opposed to just showing the audience what they should be seeing at all times. Um, and I do remember exactly what Evan said to me after he watched it. And it has always stuck in my mind because it was one of the nicest things I'd ever heard. He goes, in my work, generally I, I, I see at least one decision that I'm like, I wouldn't have made that decision. But I didn't see any of those. He said there was not one wrong decision. And I remember that very specifically. And I was just like, wow, okay. Um, and in, and I'm, I'm going to throw it back to him and Peter and Craig. Because again, their encoding of what this was. And the actors, Murray and Nick. What they had accomplished. And the architecture of what they had built as encoders. Inspired me so much to decode it in the way that... I, I, I mean, literally... All right, this is maybe no one knows this, but maybe you will now. I ended up in urgent care overnight once because I was Whoa. so worried about um, making sure that the work was so great that I ended up having like a panic attack overnight and I'd never had one. So I thought I was dying and I was like, oh, I have to go. Oh, and goodness. there was an urgent care right across the street in Canada. Of course there was. And true to the Canadian form, I went in there and I'm like, I think I'm dying. And they said, Sit down. Let's ask you some questions. I'm like, I seriously am dying. And they said, okay. And then there's a guy behind me with a stab wound in his arm. And he's like, no, please go ahead. Because that's the Canadian <laughs> wet. And they're oh like, do you mind if we treat the stab wound victim instead? And the stab wound victim's like, he's 
take care of the, the, the young American. He, needs, <laughs> he really he needs had a Last of Us moment with yeah, this. Yeah, uh, but like I, I felt <laughs> wow. so, you know, it was so much, you know, based on the material and, and, and the work I was getting, I was like, I, ha- I cannot, I cannot let anything go on, any stone go unturned. Um, and I was so proud when I turned it in because, you know, it's a, it was a very long cut. Um, and I just, right. I always say about editing, I don't want to necessarily make the decisions that someone else should be making. Um, I don't want to not show something that I feel is worth showing. I'd rather show everything that they have done in the best way I can possibly show it. And if that means the cut's going to be really long, at least I know every moment is there as opposed to someone saying, well, what else do we have? Because when mm. someone says, what else do we have? I start to feel like, uh-oh. Because I feel like what I've put out there is all the good stuff. And uh-oh, we're in trouble now if they're asking me, what else do we have? And so I like to think of it as a sculpture where all of the materials is, is, is available. And then you start sort of selectively deleting and you come from a place of subtraction versus a place of, of, of digging and searching, which sometimes I feel can end up um, less cinematic in some way, shape or form, because I've hopefully done the job of the cinematics. Um, up front and then we can decide what part of the cinematics and what beats we can drop in service of the story as a whole which is ultimately what both evan and i are trying to do is we're trying to serve this amazing story um, and watching these performances and reading the script we're just like oh dear lord this is incredible um (laughs) and i just remember reading that script and going wow and as a gay person myself i'm just going i this is a story that i feel destined to help them tell um, so all of the nuances that were imbued in the photography, I, I was like, honestly, I was like a pig in a, in a sty, just like finding all of the, <laughs> the little things. I'm like, let's get all these, uh, these truffles. We got to get these truffles. So, um, trying to find all the truffles. Uh, so Amazing. for me, that was sort of, uh, uh, uh the process of, of that. And, uh, it's no skin off anyone's back. I mean, it was so fun to like go to urgent care. I tell you, it was just like, I loved it because, <laughs> Now that I know what a panic attack is, I recognize what it could be, um, as opposed to being the guy who's just like, you know, I don't know, olive oil flailing across the street. Anyway, so they, <laughs> what a there great, you go. Put that on the signs. Yeah. Canadian urgent yeah. care. It's a lot of fun. It's fun. a lot of fun. I mean, they were, the, the guy was the nicest guy. I'm just bleeding from his, anyway. Well, let's just jump right into episode three. I mean, honestly, I kind of want to start off with the edit. Normally, I would want to start with Evan with the DP, but, you know, in an interview with Craig for Deadline... Uh, he talked about that original cut and apparently it was like a two hour cut and, uh, I, you know, you got it down to an hour and change, but I have to ask about that initial cut because, you know, was, was it in the script? Was a two hour episode in that original script? And, and Evan, were you thinking like, were you guys making that up? Somebody like, oh yeah, we were, we're shooting all this for two hours. Like how, how does that two hour bulk sort of get, first of all, how does it become the two-hour ball from the script? And then how does that end up getting crushed down into that into that hour and change? I guess maybe, Evan, we might, maybe we'll start with you and sort of talk about what was the original idea for the length of this episode? To be honest, I may punt this back to Tim because the, the details are fuzzy for me. I mean, the script was never a two-hour script. Um, I don't actually remember. Maybe it was over an hour, but nothing crazy. Um, I, I don't know. We just knew that there was a... The script was magnificent, truly the greatest I've read. Just, it was everything. It was wonderful. Everything was in that script. And we just 
honoured it as best we could and shot what was there. And if scenes played long, they played long, but that was the best version of them. So um, in terms of the process of, of length and whittling it down, I, I think I'll give it to Tim because for us, it was just making each scene great along the way. Yeah, and, and I can absolutely speak to this. And, and, and sort of this sort of dovetails into my previous sort of discussion about how I like to give the, the, the biggest uh, sort of version of what was filmed as opposed to making decisions on my own um, uh, about what should go and what should not go. I, I mean, of course, I think about them and I go, well, this could go, but not for me right now to decide. Let's like make maybe I don't know that this specific moment is very critical for an episode later. I just don't know that. So I'm like, I'm, I'm basically saying smorgasbord and you get to pick from that and you can hopefully it's a beautifully designed plate um that has been uh, curated as it were um and so originally i and i and i reread the script recently and there's very little from it that's missing mm. that so when we got it back down to 74 minutes there's very little of it that's missing and that's the, the strength of that script was uh basically everything and i and i craig's talked about this but this was kind of his first draft of the script, mm. I, I believe. And they were just like, we love it, go make it. And he's like, yeah, so that's what I want to do. Um, and so the process for me to get it down was, uh, the first process was with Peter Hoare. And, you know, Eben and Peter had sent out um, splinter units to film all of these beautiful images of every location that they went to. So there was always another camera that was going out and grabbing these images because I believe like Craig had even said in, in uh, uh, or the script had, had mentioned in the beginning that the difference between the beginning of this episode and the past is that we're no longer in the darkness of the QZ. Yeah. We're no longer in, now we're in nature again and nature is thriving and nature is thriving. And therefore I believe that it's probably inspired all of these uh, pieces of film that were shot. There was just beautiful pieces. And I basically said, I want to, I will present all of these as little miniature sort of interstitial montages in the areas that uh, they might work best. And a lot of it was saying, all right, I'm going to tell a story with these interstitials as well. And maybe this is uh, something that lives. Maybe it isn't something that lives. Maybe it's something that can work later. And so I present them in full and then Peter Horst says, okay, you have like 14 images here. How about we do it in three? And I go, mm. great. <laughs> so, because I was like telling a whole story about how the water comes down the creek and how the creek turns in this and how an eddy becomes that. And then the eddy turns into the rock that Joel picks up. So, <laughs> and so it's like, well, that's not the story, but it was very beautiful. So, uh, so that was one of the things that would happen is that, you know, Peter would say, all right, we can use these, but let's use them more sparingly. And so Peter's first uh, instinct was to sort of take those and, and, and sort of fine tune them as he went. Um, and then a lot of it was uh, the reason it became longer than the script, honestly, is because in this specific world, it felt more natural to me as an editor to allow things to play without edits, if I could. And to use the edit as sort of a purposeful and, and as Eben would say an intentional decision to go from one thing to the other and the sequence that I remember most uh, was the sequence where they have uh, lunch for the first time and there's this they're at this table and it was staged so beautifully um, 
that they're on opposite ends. And it was the first scene I had done maybe ever where I felt like it was a dual point of view. Like that there were equal point of views happening within the same scene that I was servicing um, because there was two basically competing uh, goals between the two characters, one of which was to, to hide who they were and one of which was to pry and to try and figure out. And so the character of Frank is going, I'm trying to figure you out and I'm going to do my best uh, to, to sort, of, sort of secretly pry. I'm going to use my little secret language um, and, and sort of poke you in little places. And the character of Bill has done this amazing thing, which of course he would do because he's trying to sort of impress this person. But at the same time, when he's sort of called out, he starts to retreat. And so I felt like all of these little nuanced moments only exist in a negative space. And that's something that Neil Druckmann loves to talk about, negative space. We even put like negative space in um, uh, thumbtacks or pushpins, they call them, wow. in a little corner of the editing room. And of course, they were clear pushpins, so you couldn't see it um, uh, unless you saw the shadows. And so that was our honorary Neil Druckmann space was called the negative space. Um, and I feel like if people are speaking in a, in a scene... You're sort of as a as a viewer, you're listening and you're processing to what they're saying in addition to looking at the frame. But if there are, but if it's just the person's face and there are no words, then you're hyper focused on the emotion of that character at that given time. So I wanted to make sure, and I've I've loved working with a sort of a negative space, as it were, for many many years now. I learned the term on Fringe. The, you know, 13 years ago. Um, and I was like, well, this is great. And it's basically the lack of, you know, dialogue. It's negative space. Um, and so being able to il illuminate the smallest little moments and to hold on characters because I don't want it to go too fast because if I have it go too fast, it's not awkward. And it's not, you know, a sussing of, of, of the other character. So I would, I would, you know, if, if the, if, if the actors had started their dialogue line uh, during a specific moment that I was like, Oh, but I really love how long it took, you know, Nick Offerman's character to look back up at Frank, I would mute it on my end and just wait for him to look back up and then cut to Frank. And then Frank would decide what he's about to say next because he's now connected to him. So my process is always about, sort of connection and disconnection and how I can modulate that within what's been given to me. And so that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of scenes that may have uh, been page count wise a little shorter turned into richer scenes because there was all of the subtext and nuance that was being imbued in these performances. And I wasn't about to say, well, this is a one page scene. It has to be one minute. You know, <laughs> I, I say, I always, my, my, my quote to myself, ha, huh, my quote to myself, my, what I say to myself, what I say to myself is pace is not speed. Pace is interest. Mm -hmm. And if someone says pace it up, I don't say make it faster. I say, what about this is not interesting. And I don't want to hurt. I don't want to hurt the way it feels. I just want to extract what's not interesting. And to the credit of the script, to the director, to the, the script and I'm sorry to uh, Peter and to Eben there was very little that I was not interested in very little mm -hmm. and in fact I was over interested in almost everything 
um, which was why I was sort of terrified as it was going up. And it was fun because, you know, the script supervisor's report starts at an hour. And it was, I believe it was like a 60-some page script. It was not a, by any means a two-hour thing. And so I kept watching every day it go up and up and up and up and up. And so I was like, oh, cool. Everybody knows this. So, mm. so everyone must be on board with this, right? And so at the end, they're like, why is this so long? I'm like, well, I looked at the script notes. And the script notes said it was like an hour, you know, 40. And I'm like, what? I'm not that much further over that. And they're like, oh, we weren't really paying attention to that. I'm like, oh, I assumed you were. Sorry. We got to get the script supervisors on the line. No, Chris is at the pipeline. No, Chris is. Don't worry. Don't worry. Chris Roof's the greatest script supervisor ever. Like bar none. And I would I would rely on a lot of his notes, actually, from what Evan would 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 say and what Peter Hoare would say or what Craig Mason would say. They would translate, you know, their feelings about certain shots um, into the line script. And I read those because, again, I'm a decoder I'm a, and I'm trying to figure out and get into the sort of the mindset of the creatives on the set so that I can bring out the very best of what has been filmed. Is that another underrated relationship? Editor and script supervisor. Beyond it's important, point. it's like huge. Huge. It's kind of that, that kind of the translator between. Yeah. You know, we, we think sometimes we've captured magic, but but maybe the magic isn't immediately obvious. So, oh, do you know right, what? Part yeah. one of that take is incredible, and if we then jump to this and go to part two of this take, oh, you know, chef's kiss. And if yeah. that intention isn't in like it, like if the editor isn't given like at least a clue <laughs> to that that is what we thought on the day the magic was then that whole decoding process is surely so much harder so it is and then and then i may make decisions you know and i'm i feel grateful that i've had such great you know mentors in my life that have trained my eye to see things that are important in the frame things that are have value i would notice at times you know, when a shot would change into the third take, I'm like, oh, you know, what's really great. Oh, look at that cute little dog. I was going to say, who, uh, who's joining us today? This is Poppy. Hello, Poppy. Poppy. Oh, my God. Sorry. But I've got to pick her up and start barking and it'll be an even worse interruption. We here at Geek Vibes Nation support dogs joining interviews. Yeah. Big fan. You don't want my dog here. Trust me. He's a nightmare. Um, <laughs> I love my nightmare. Um but like I would see, uh, and specifically in that dinner table sequence, the, the first lunch, I remember there was a take where uh, Frank was drinking uh, the glass of wine. And on the last take, the the camera included that shimmering goblet and in, in a way that it was in the foreground. And it was this beautiful sort of piece that also spoke so much to the the, uh, the, the texture of that house. The texture of that uh, of who Bill was as a character, what he lived with, and so these little tiny details would would sort of come into me as I was watching it, going, "That's the difference here," and and the performance is equally, if not better. So I'm absolutely using this piece because it's going to add texture to the the overall episode. Yeah, uh, I want to take a brief moment to talk about visual effects uh, because this show is obviously littered with them. And, uh, you know, obviously episodes four and five have a lot of stuff I want to briefly touch upon. But, Evan, we got to talk about the roofs, man. What's going on with the roofs <laughs> in episode three? Because I keep listening to interviews and you're like, oh, yeah, all the roofs are CGI. I don't want to get into it. But, like, well, now it's time to, like, get into it. I mean, to be honest, it, yeah, like, it, it's one of those things that sort of seems 
uh, silly, maybe. Um, but I think, I think, to be honest, it's to do with when you're built, because we built that whole town. It was just, a, it was an empty lot. It, the only thing that was there was concrete. Um, I think they were, they got planning permission for a town there uh, or, or, you know, a little housing estate. And then there was a flood that washed away the foundations and it all fell apart. So it's kind of a forest that just has like some concrete, uh, some asphalt and, and that's it. So for us, it was perfect as a back lot to build a Bill's town. But, um, you know, the design, the, the amount of construction needed was quite elaborate. And my understanding is that if you're going to put a roof on a house, uh, you know, the integrity of the build has to be that much more complicated. Uh, you, you need a lot more structural support. So I think you can kind of throw up four walls relatively easily and quickly versus if you do the full builds, you need a lot more permission, something like that. So I, I think it was just sort of logistics. Uh, you know, I don't entirely understand, but it, but it, in the end, I don't think it matters because I think nobody everyone, cares. Man. You know, nobody was it, watching right? episode yeah. three and being like, those roofs don't look right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was fantastic. It was, it was just another fantastic detail about this show. And, and Tim, I really want to talk to you about your relationship with the VFX teams, because, I mean, first of all, there's a ton of houses working on this project. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're kind of getting VFX from all over. But is there a relationship between the editor and the VFX teams? Are we going back and forth between it? Or are you, oh, you yes. make the cut and then you send it off and they do the effects? Or is it way more complicated? No, the beauty of what I get to do as an editor is I get to interface with everyone. And every department i either i see it on the frame that you know they deliver to me or i get to work with you know the writer the director the producers and visual effects and the sound mixing teams everything and so visual effects was in-house and so the entire visual effects team and it was amazing and it was led by uh, our visual effects supervisor alex wong and his producer sean nolan Incredible. They had um, many uh, coordinators in the offices. Uh, I, I mean, uh, visual effects production managers, visual effects editors, visual effects assistant editors. There's so many. I could, I, you know, they're all my friends very dearly. I actually was out last night with uh, two of them who are leaving. You know, Alex Wong is now on a plane back to Vancouver today, and I had to see them. So I'm like, I'm going to see you, and I don't care. And we're gonna, you know, we're gonna pretend <laughs> not to cry at the end of the night. Um, but we developed a very close relationship because they're right there. So if I ever had a question about a shot and what the intentions were about uh, the visual effects, I'd, I would just walk over and say, hey, you know, Alex or Casey or uh, Devin or Jody or Vince or James <laughs> or Tyler. It's like <laughs> I, I would have all of these people at my or Luke or Bal. Uh, or Ryan. I mean, I I know all of them. Those are that's all of them, honestly, um, because I know them so well. Uh, I would just ask questions, uh, and I would say, "What's this? You know, what are what's the idea here?" And they would give me, "Oh, this is the idea here." And I also am not like someone who sometimes I I think uh, editors can uh, maybe like try and create visual effects that aren't supposed to be there, and I'm like. No, I, I, I know that so many people have made many decisions early on in prep where they say, we probably will only need four or five shots of this. Um, hopefully that works. Sometimes it doesn't. They usually budget for more, um, just in case. Uh, but in general, I, I, I try and collaborate with them as, as what the plan is. And again, I'm, I'm again decoding 
what these things are from them, and then we'll work together. So for example, uh, if there is a uh, something that has to be uh, have specific animation, they will we'll we'll have a version of it that was done in real time, and then we'll send it off to a VFX house, get the temporary animation done, and then I will go back in and recut it based on the animation now that I have the actual movement that's ha that's that's taking place. And then we send it back to the VFX houses to complete it because now we've actually made the animation work editorially. Um, but a lot of it was also me asking questions about like, hi, you know, what if I did this in this shot? Was this something that's interesting to you? And they would say, oh, let's talk to Craig about that. And so we'd all powwow together because we, again, we were all in the same space. Um, we occupied this sort of uh, crazy uh, tiki themed office in, in, in Burbank. It was bizarre. Um, totally not the last of us, um, except, <laughs> except maybe for the, some of the things that didn't work like, uh, you know, air conditioning here and there, but, um, <laughs> kind of crucial, but, but we all were together. And so, uh, it was, it was such a group effort and I cannot say enough about the amount of creative and just inspired work that everyone on that team did. Because it really was, the, I always said, you guys are MVP of this of this whole process. Um, and to see the work that they've done on a major scale, every time I would see a shot that was, uh, and, I, and sometimes I wouldn't see shots until they were at the very end. Um, there's a piece of, uh, in episode four, where they're going by these tanks and all of this right. This, these dead, you know, soldiers and, and military that have been gone. And, and initially, of course, there's not all of that there. Um, and I'd never seen it until like just before it aired. And I, and I, my, my, I said, Oh my God. So that is just, it brings so much beauty and life to this because of course, Ellie says, I want to see a tank. So, and then when she gets to see a tank, she's not as happy about it. Um, and that's a story point. And so VFX is involved in the storytelling. Um, so having them and, and, and their leadership, um, and their fun, I mean, they're insanely fun people. So, um, they can party like nobody. I'm so like out of my league with them. So it's just great. So that's, that's what I, I, I could go on for hours about visual effects and the team that they had. Well, let me, Hey, let's keep going a little bit here with the VFX yes. and, and, and sure. Evan, mm. We have yeah. to talk about the climax of episode five. I mean, I want to talk about yeah, episode yeah. four and five yeah. kind of as a as a unit because they do kind of feel like a unit. Jeremy Webb directed both episodes, mm -hmm. but that ending to episode five is like a VF. I mean, it's either a VFX, uh, it's either a nightmare or a dream, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, <laughs> but that there's one shot that I have to pick your brain about, and, and you know, maybe Tim, you can talk a little bit about this as well. It's that first shot where all of the infected are rising out of that hole, like an like I think as Evan, you may have described it in an interview once, like an ant colony just sort of like rushing yeah. out now that the hole has been made, and. You know, when you sit back and you think about that shot, you're just like, oh, okay, just a bunch of people rising up. But like the, log I want to know about like the logistics of like people exiting the hole. Like, what was it like, Evan, to block that out? And then Tim, while you're editing it and seeing the VFX come up for it, how do how does that particular moment come together? 
I mean, that sequence, my God. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions. Same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Like that sequence was was just, I mean, I think I've said elsewhere, like I I feel like 80% of the prep for episode five was the cul-de-sac sequence, which is like 10 pages out of 60. Um, and you know, it was, it was, oh my God, it was so many things. We we had a little kind of model cul-de-sac, uh, and model cars and little toys. And it was me and Jeremy every single day playing with toys and just going, okay, so this is where the sniper is. This is where the truck's going to come. How far have they got to run? Which is the house that it crashed into? You know, we're, we're planning out all of these things. And then at every single stage, we then have to take the expertise of everyone else who that's going to affect. So, okay, the car is going to smash into a house. Okay, how do we do that? What do art department need? What do stunts need? What do the the you know picture vehicles need? Or everyone has to have their say to make sure we can pull off the, these story ideas that, of course, come from the script. Um, and then then it comes to the infected, and then you're into a whole new world of stunts on, on a major scale of, of movement coaches. And all of the intention is in the script. I think the thing about Angry Ants may even be written in the script. I can't it remember. Is. But it absolutely it is, was. Right? Yeah. So all of these things always come from the script. And then we just try to interpret them visually and present the best version. And I guess the main thing I'd say that like there's so many things we did. We, we sort of shot every single thing in camera. Like everything. <laughs> However, <laughs> Alex wild. and his team did unbelievable amounts of work on top of that to the point where when I now watch it, I'm sort of like, is that, have they done that? Have I done that? And I, and actually in my opinion, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Like in the end, we've got to this incredible place and, and I, I give so much praise to VFX. And I just think actually the fact that I shot it, and I don't know sometimes whether it's a complete <laughs> replacement, a VFX character, a physical character. All of those things kind of blur and it just becomes a sequence that I'm very proud of and uh, incredibly thankful for how good the VFX is. Yeah. So so when we're talking about the, the infected coming out, there's so you're saying that you sort of shot it with everyone coming out and the VFX, they added even more additional people coming out as well? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so in terms of the speed, like, uh, you know, all the conversations were about speed. I mean, safety is yeah. always a huge thing. You, right. you know, we want this to be everything it is, but also we don't want people to get hurt. We're dealing with fire. We're dealing with all kinds of things. And there's only so fast that real people can go. So we had built, you know, a ramp inside the hole and there were all of these rehearsals and it was incredible. Um, and then VFX made it even better. That's what I'd say. I don't know. I mean, Tim, you were more involved. I shot it on the day. I then leave for about a year. So. <laughs> yeah, no. no. I mean, it, 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 that, that shot specifically was such a, a – it was monumentally beautiful. And I also think that one of the reasons why it was as effective as it was was because, you know, Craig Mason had this idea on the sound mix stage. And he said, you know, what if we artificially but invisibly – take all the sound down to almost nothing. And then suddenly whoosh, they come yes. just come exploding. Yes. I think he used the term vomiting out, you know, and, yes. and that was the sort of the, uh, what everyone took their cue from. Um, and, and, and having the piece of film at that level as well from the, and I always like to talk about point of view as an editor. And this is like, you know, the scariest potential possible point of view is, you know, there's, this is, the audience's point of view of what's what's happening at this very moment. You are you are one of those uh, poor um, you know uh, hunters that are 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 about to be devoured. Um, and so yes, the when they came out, it was a beautiful shot. And VFX would say we can surgically enhance things here and there to make them faster than real human beings can go. Because yes, safety is always the number one concern, and that's you know Craig and. Uh, uh, the whole production units, they, they were so good at safety. Um, everyone always felt safe. I mean, I remember when uh, Gabe Luna, uh, they did the whole s uh, sequence in the pilot uh, where they crashed the, the, the sheriff's van. And, I, and I, was, I happened to be there for that. And I said to Gabe right after, I said, how did you feel? And he goes, safe. Um, so that was the wow. sort of the, the, the whole crew up there. That was their whole vibe. Uh, it, was, it was all safety. Uh, and so seeing how VFX can surgically do that but have those elements that, you know, Evan and the team have shot. And, you know, I, I've worked with Jeremy Webb before as well. It was, it's just so nice to be able to see all of these people that I um, love, all of the, of the, uh, the work they put into it, do these things. And then having that as a baseline to then improve upon, um, as opposed to we have nothing here and it's all going to be digital creatures coming up. You know, right. like there's a difference there. And you can always it's tell. Blend, yeah. You can always yeah. tell. I, I'm always like, oh, look at how shiny those things are. That's not real. So <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. something about the lack of sheen on real objects that and, and, and sort of like a sort of a hybrid human inhuman and, and having those two interspersed within the same frame. I think, as Eben had said, you, you're not sure which one is which. And I think that's that's the ultimate uh, uh, testament to the sort of the taste level of all the people who were involved in making that that shot and in that sequence, because I know every piece that was uh, uh, real and every piece that's not real. And it's it is a really tough thing to look at and go, I don't know. So, I mean, we got to talk a little bit about the bloater because talk about <laughs> hybrid stuff. I mean, I did not even realized that there was a practical suit that was made and uh that was shot i mean saying that you shot everything in camera is like uh bonkers like seeing all the stuff that gets translated from in camera to the visual effects tim i understand that the 
the suit for the bloater was obviously shorter, and then in visual effects, the creature was given a little bit more uh, height or bigness. Am I correct in that, or was the suit Is also the right? same size? Uh, it was massive. It was he a massive. I mean, the he, dude's a massive he dude. Was a, yeah, he's six foot six, and I, I yeah. thought in the suit he was seven foot. So I, I do remember oh. as as we were framing up, I remember thinking like just the presence of him here rather than a tennis ball on the on a right. stick <laughs> means yeah. so much. Like and yeah. when and he could run in that thing, and when he runs at um at Jeffrey, I. I all of us were just like, "Oh my god!" And it really affects you, and it affects everyone around. So, yeah, um, and I didn't. I mean, I don't know if the height has changed, but he was he was huge. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I I don't know about that either. I'm, I mm. what I do know is that it was a beautiful CGI creation that utilized that suit as the most, and and the, and having the guy in that prosthetic that Barry Gower made, unreal, beautiful yeah. design. And it gave the performances that fear, which was really important. As I've been said, it's not a tennis ball that's running at you. So they actually see these things. And so Jeffrey's performance is based on seeing this come towards him. And in the end, you know, we all say, well, it's still going to be replaced because that was, you know, we, we have to make it again, not human, sort of this hybrid and, and having what it looked like as a human, as a reference Right. Gives you the ability to sort of A, B those together and say, now, how do we slightly enhance this to make it like that? And now we have all the lighting cues. All We know what the lighting is going to look like on the real prosthetic. We can now use that to to make this uh, character feel like that suit. But I also have to I have to go back to a comment you made before in that you and the VFX department are working together to edit to these creations to those how the movements change from when they go from practical to when you start adding in the vfx i have to imagine for the bloater there was a little bit of that back and forth of now once he becomes a visual effect you did what was there a little bit of that back and forth in in deciding the tone because i mean that moment with to clarify jeffrey pierce who plays perry in the show uh he is uh torn asunder literally Um, and I have to imagine that that bloater turning into CGI, there was a little bit of that editing back and forth. Am I wrong? Yeah, no, it's the animations of it. Yeah. I mean, so in a way, like I had, you know, the physical version, but then they also are wise and they all shot plates so that they, we have, uh, the ability to then, I I would have multiple layers and I say, well, here's the plate version of this moment. Here is the bloater version of this moment. And so I have them sort of sitting on top of each other. And so I can play both at any given time and just change my track uh, and be able to see it. And and then once the animation comes in, then you start editing to the animation of the, the character that's being created. Um, and so that was the, that was really the back and forth of it is having these pieces that, you know, Eben and, and Jeremy and Craig on the set are saying, we need a plate now and we need the action to be just as good, but now without the character so that, if we need to, we will now place the character within this this piece, but then having the ability to, on the other side, what they're filming, be the reactions from the actual uh, uh, prosthetic suit, and that was sort of the, the 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 way it worked the best is that you you got these performances from your human actors based on having this amazing prosthetic that looks it would it would be you know if it if it didn't have to be like a um, and sort of slightly inhuman thing, you you might have used the whole thing. 
So, but it, it, it imbued all of those uh, uh, human performances in a way that I think made that sequence that much scarier. Uh, Evan, I want to uh, take a step back from the, the edit relationship a little bit to talk about the production design on the show and mm. uh, talk a little bit about, especially, there's a little bit of it in episode three, but especially in episodes four and five. Something that I noticed while watching the show is that you can tell there is so much detail yeah. in all of the sets and all the production design. And yet so much of the lighting is like non-lighting. Like there are so many mm. moments in the show where characters are only really lighting the sets by uh, holes in the ceiling or with flashlights. Yeah. Like I think about the going through the maintenance tunnels in episode five, you know, like it's yeah. such a, there's so much darkness. And yet I'm sure that you guys had to think a little bit about, okay, we want to show audiences these sets. We want to show the decay of everything, but we also want to be using these practical light sources. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit uh, to that, um, to the conscious choices you were making in that. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like I, I think the world of the last of us um, is so that it's so inherently cinematic. You've got 20 years of, of planet earth nature uh, fighting its way back into all of the, the, the modernity of, of, you know, human beings touch and, and all of these structures are, you know, the outside is coming in. Um, you've, you've got decay, you've got dust, you've got dirt. All of these things are inherently cinematic and good looking on camera. So in terms of how do we present this cinematic world, the approach was to do less, to be more grounded in reality, more documentary. Let's make this, you know, let's suspend disbelief as much as possible. If we had decided, if I decided to, in this scene, I'm going to have the perfect backlight and the perfect this and the perfect that, and I've got film lights here, there and everywhere. It's like a layer of sheen, of fakeness, of, of cinematic that the world doesn't need for, for this story. And it's just not The Last of Us. You know, there is a kind of grounded truth to the last of us that that you just feel and and so so often yeah my job was working closely with the art department to look at their designs uh, for a set and i would think about okay this if this is a real location how would it be lit in the real world and then for what we're going to need on camera and for the tone of the story and the characters at this moment what what else do I need that can be physical and practical and part of the world that's going to help me light it to the story point without having to bring in film lighting? Film lighting, cheating, if you like, was always worst case scenario. And I'd do everything possible to not do that. So um, I don't, I'm thinking at the beginning of episode four of Ellie in the gas station toilet, um, that was a windowless room. Um, and we knew there would be, we needed light from somewhere. We didn't feel like it was a torch scene. And, you know, so the, uh, it could either be, uh, you know, a hole in a wall, a hole in the ceiling. And we kind of came up with the idea that she's looking in the mirror and wouldn't it be great if there's just one hole in the ceiling and the sun is coming down and it's giving her kind of a backlight, but it's not perfect. And then it's bouncing into the environment and the environment is then reflecting right. that light onto her face. So you're sort of lighting the set from one light through one hole, but it's all organic and all real and all part of the same. And with as little cheating around that as possible. Um, and that, that was the last of us to me visually. That's what it was. That was always the job is how do I create a, uh, a naturalistic yet cinematic scenario 
where our characters can move and where the shots are gonna you know feel like high production value feel um cinematic again but still grounded and still have all the flaws you know embrace flaws embrace this and make it feel like a real location rather than every shot being perfectly lit um so yeah a lot of communication a lot of planning i mean the, the art department on this were just like i mean but just above and beyond i can't even just it was insane i've never known anything like this art department um it's a road trip movie so you never return to locations you're always on the move it's forwards 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 everywhere they stop is a new location um and they've got to do 20 years of aging to it and the detail was you know anywhere you would look there was interesting artistic beautiful aging you know moss um, rust, just everything in between. It was incredible. It really was. Yeah. I want to take a step back now, even further, to talk a little bit about, you know, you're on a TV show. You guys are, you know, Tim, you've worked on a number of the episodes of the show. Evan, you're working on three. You change directors in between a lot of these episodes. And yet the show still does have this consistency in tone and style. And uh, we can even talk a little bit about this with episode six, which Evan, I, IMDb lists that you're the DP of, but from what we've talked about, you were not the DP of. Um, and, and so I would love to talk a little bit for both of you about how does one work with different directors to sort of maintain this consistency within the style of the show while also allowing them to sort of let their creative voice come out and, and Evan we can start with you and I when you mm. talk about this I'd also love to hear a little bit about passing the torch uh mm. for episode six for uh Yasmila and sort of how you imparted that style onto them when you were taking your leave for the show well yeah it all comes back to Craig and Neil honestly and you know when I interviewed for this job I think I think I got the job for what it's worth because when I was talking to them about my interpretation, there was a lot of nodding happening. <laughs> I, I just felt like this is what they were hoping I would say. And I think that that is, you know, I think they hired cinematographers and directors who they felt understood the world of The Last of Us, understood what it wasn't and could give their little version of it. But really... You know, there is just a through line that is Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann. And Craig was across every episode. He was on set every day. And he's there. And he's not even there to... It's not a case of, like, um, looking over your shoulder and policing you in a negative way. It's more just he's like a an encyclopedia of what this world is and isn't. So it's more about question and answer. And he wants to give you space as directors and cinematographers to try things and to do your thing. But if ever you wander off into the woods too far, he's there to sort of say, this is starting to feel not like The Last of Us. And any time he ever said that, it's like, you're absolutely right. We got excited with the here and now of this scene or this location. And you've it kind of clarifies that thought. So in a way, that, that, that just is the job. Um, and and I think we all had so much like respect and love for the series overall. And we realized, or I realized, I only shot three episodes, that I want, I want each of my episodes to be great on their own, but I also just want the series to be great overall. So the last thing I want to do is come in and tear up the rule book and say okay i want to shoot black and white and you know it's just it's just inappropriate it doesn't need to be that and it's 
um, it, it was always about the best idea wins. You know, there was never any sort of this is how you have to do things. It was just a case of this feels right in the moment and Craig's there to kind of give you the thumbs up and you move on. So I think between us as cinematographers, there wasn't actually much talking, to be honest. I mean, like, I, I definitely spoke to Ksenia. Um, I definitely spoke to Christine and Nadim. So I, I did actually speak to all of them. But a lot of the time it was sort of, you know, there were a few fundamental principles about the world. We did a lot of handheld operating. There's a sort of operating style that's consistent across the season. And then you've got the world of The Last of Us. So electricity is at a premium, you know, nature coming through windows, all of these things. And then we as cinematographers just interpret that and we do it in our own little way. But it ends up very, very similar, I think, between the episodes. Um, yeah. And uh, Edmund, real quick before we move on, Tim, can you just name drop, uh, you know, for IMDb's sake, as well as ours, can you name drop the uh, who uh, you passed the torch off to for episode six? Uh, so Christine was the DP and Yas Miller um, was, was the director. And actually, I did speak to them both a little bit more than normal because I did shoot some additional photography for them. So I went and did some of the, the nature stuff like um, people did for me in episode three. I kind of went and did that for episode six. So I was still involved and, and worked with Yas Miller. She was wonderful. But it's absolutely Christine's uh episode as a cinematographer so so in that episode you know it, it would be a lot more okay christine what do you want these nature shots to be it's not it's not it's not my handwriting it's your handwriting so i know the world of the last of us and i know what i've done but what would you do if you were standing there holding the camera because i just want to emulate that as much as possible yeah. yeah and what's really interesting is that you have all of these different directors and they sort of correspond to when locations are changing so each of yeah. these different places has this unique identity because each director and these different cinematographers are coming on and just bringing it. I, I have to give a shout out to Ali Abbasi's work in the later uh, uh, the later half of the series because some of the close-ups in the la last half of the episodes are like shockingly good. Like, incredible. Like how <laughs> did you get that levels of good? Um, Tim, I'd love to hear from you. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, going between different directors. But I mean, you worked on many more episodes of the show and you probably worked with uh, the majority of the directors on the show. What was it like working and, and, you know, working with all the different directors, but still maintaining that uh, cohesive uh, style and tone? Well, yeah, no. And what I started to realize about what Craig does is he has a very specific point of view and he wants the series, I think the series works as well as it does is because we have taken this idea of point of view very seriously in the editing room. So for example, in the pilot episode, we very much, uh, it was, it was part of the design that we wanted to focus the point of view of the first 30 minutes on Sarah. And so I have shot, I have scenes with Pedro Pascal and Nico Parker and Pedro Pascal has one close up, and Nico Parker has 12 because I'm focusing on her experience and all of the subtext and the nuance is coming from her. So it, what it does is sort of invisibly has the audience with her and Pedro's there and you want to see more of him, but he's sort of slightly more disconnected and she's very connected. So when, you know, she dies, I think the audience doesn't expect it because you were thinking the entire time that this is someone you're going to follow the story through and 
uh, I felt very close to this person. I felt like she was the one that we were going to see how they get away and etc. And, you know, for people who haven't played the game and don't know what's coming, that was the, uh, the intention. And uh, spoiler alert, I have still never played the game. So, you know, I was going to ask you if you had experience with the game, but I guess we've got our answer. None. And it was not necessarily like a conscious choice. I was brought on very late. Um, And and so I was like, I didn't really have time. Um, And so I said to myself, well, something I learned a long time ago, which was don't sometimes it's better to have no preconceptions. Um, Not always, but sometimes it's a risk. Uh, but it was a risk I thought was was worth taking based on the material that I read. Because the material that I read, I was like, well, this is about point of view. And that's something that I can really, you know, I'm I'm very much a big believer in that as an editor, is to shape point of view and who who you're following in any given scene. So I feel like in each episode, what we have been able to sort of keep consistent is the point of view of the characters on the ground. And so in the sequence that, you know, uh, uh, Jeremy and Eben uh, did in the laundromat um, in episode four, you know, everything is from their point of view. Everything. There's no shots. There's no camera shots that go over and see them in their closer shots because it all has to be from that point of view. And so the decisions to of what to film are important as well. And when, you know, the uh, sort of the the the, uh, the bad guy comes in. You know, this is when Craig says, I want to see everything from Ellie's perspective. I do not want to go out. I do not want to see him. I know we've covered this character, but I don't, I want to feel like I'm her and I don't know what's out there. Um, so that is a, a big force is that Craig is sort of controlling the narrative throughout the, all of the episodes, which allows um, sort of the independent directors to have their voices. But at the same time, we're able to shape those in a way that is consistent across the entire series. And I think the biggest thing is it is about being grounded in the point of view of these characters and focusing on them when necessary. Um, and yeah. my belief is I want to show the point of view of the character. And if I'm not showing the point of view of the character, there's some sort of threat to that character that I want to show. Um, so, like, it, it, for example, in that sequence, when Ellie comes out with a gun, we're always with Ellie. Except there's one shot that I was like, well, but Pedro looks like he's literally going to be suffocated. And that's the threat mm. to the character. So even though it's not from her point of view, it enhances the threat to the, the character, which gives what she's about to do uh, more impact. Um, and yeah. so that was sort of the decisions on how to follow point of view. Um, and I think, again, like in the Henry Sam, you know, everyone keeps saying, how are you able to get us to care about these characters so quickly? And a lot of it is because we made specific decisions in the editing room to always follow these uh, these characters through their perspectives um, and not go objective, stay subjective. Um, and we have options, um, but also the options are already intelligently made on the set. So I'm like, okay, I don't need to you know follow these guys because they don't they didn't film them because they all decided on the day we don't need that because this is all from this point of view. Um, and so I think that's ultimately why working with many different directors is so interesting is because you'll get those different insights of each uh, uh, series. You know, Peter Hoare is able to imbue this gay storyline between Bill and Frank in a, in a very unique way uh, because he's a gay man. And so he is able to say to them, like, uh, let's talk about this um, and have yeah. discussions with them. 
um, and say, you know, here's what I, my experiences were. I want to give those to you to help inspire you. Um, so all those things sort of coalesce. And then in the editing room, we control them. Amazing. Um, Tim, we got to talk a little bit about episode six, which by the time that this conversation goes up, uh, the episode will have aired. Evan, have you seen anything about episode six? I, I, see, I saw the final. I happened to be there. I saw the final version of it. Um, oh, okay. It, it's, it's wonderful. I loved it. Yeah. Amazing. So, so, Tim, just talk to me a little bit about your experience working with Yasmila and also, just like, you know, this this episode is such an important... I mean, every episode is important in their own way. But this episode is the finally the return of Tommy. We finally are with this character now, which I think you know, fans of the series have been like patiently waiting to see Gabriel Luna, you know, come back as this character. I mean, episode six was a beautiful script. And I remember reading the script after uh, the Bill and Frank and going, oh, my God another gorgeous piece of writing um like gorgeous um and you know it was just a, a beautiful and yasmila is such a lovely soul um and christine mm. meyer her, her director of photography is a beautiful person as well and and having them sort of go through and, and I, I don't know if anyone has seen they, they made this film called quo Vadis aida which was an oscar nominee for best Foreign language film unbelievable and Incredible. one of the things about that film that I, I felt like was very specific to what uh, they were doing in The Last of Us was this idea of being grounded with a one character's point of view. And that was, you know, that was how those those sequences were filmed. And I was like, well, that makes sense. And that's why they're very well suited to tell the story. Um, so and, and there was a difference in the uh, sort of the because the geography of the series had changed so much it made the editing of it slightly different because it was just, it, it, there was more openness to it. There was a little bit more um, ability to show the world a little bit more than from the direct perspective of the characters involved. Um, and it was also like one of those episodes where um, so much action had happened that this was, uh, I believe it was probably designed um, to have uh, the audience breathe as, a, a, yeah. as part of the whole. You know, because the whole season basically could be viewed as one amazing long film and it has a beautiful yeah. structure to it. Um, so you're not overwhelmed by the same things happening over and over. Like it's just, you know, it doesn't fall into some sort of formula. And everyone's like, well, there's no cold open this one. I'm like, ah, you're not going to get one. So sorry. Oh, so I, I miss I miss the cold <laughs> opens. See? I'm not going to lie. See, I do. But there, there is a very visible three act structure throughout the season. I've seen the yeah. whole the whole series, and yeah. it's uh, it's remarkable actually the pacing of how how it is paced. Yeah, were there cold opens for the rest of the episodes? I know there's there's uh, one and two, and then there's one more in the series. I won't spoil it. Yeah, there's one additional one. Mm -hmm. Were there yeah. any others that were planned out, or were there no cold opens? Uh, sort of in this chunk of episode. Well, it's funny. It's like the decision on where to place the title sequence was interesting because you could have started the pilot with the title sequence and then gone to the, to that scene and yeah, then it totally. no longer would have been a cold open. And this was Craig's, you know, does, you know, all of it was des uh, designed by Craig and when he wanted to do that. And so it was, a, I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly if I were to speculate, I would say it made sense after they talk about fungus to then show fungus as opposed to show fungus and then talk about it. 
So that would yes. be what makes editorial sense to me is talk and, and create mystery and then show this artistic rendition of what happened. Um, and so therefore that sort of became a cold open, even though it wasn't necessarily written as such. It, you know, the, the, the script is like a feature. And so, and, you know, television has all these like, you know, cold open, act one, act two, act three. And these just feel like sort of, um, oh my gosh. I mean, they're just so, um, you never feel act breaks. You never feel anything. You just feel like a constant thread is being woven um, in, a, in this tapestry of the whole thing. So, and then again, in this, in, in that second episode, it was about how can we show how it happened versus what could happen. And that made it made more sense than to have that be the first thing you see. Cause it's also, and Craig has spoken about this. It's, it's, it's about disarming the audience slightly and putting them a little off cancer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and so that's something that he is, is one of his strategies, which I think works really well. So having that sequence and then having that long, slow, you know, Neil Druckmann directed that long, slow push in on Ibu Ratna's face that all of a sudden then she's like, bomb. And, mm. and, and, and the, the dread that comes from that and then seeing the, again, the result of that, um, as opposed to seeing it first and then being in there, there was, a, there was space that needed to happen between those two things that would give the yeah. audience a chance to really sort of process it as opposed to just moving on to the very next thing. So that's kind of how those things worked out. And then we would think about maybe putting the main titles in different areas. I mean, in, in episode three, there was, I, I initially thought in my mind, maybe it should go between when they leave uh, the first location um, to their walk. You know, maybe that's the, where we put it after said, Oh, it's five hour hike. All right, let's go. Then maybe we do it there. But then, you know, we looked at that. And we're like, eh, not so much. And the mm. as a whole, it was like the journey of them was so such, again, a cohesive thread that interrupting that thread just was didn't feel right. And so it was really about where we would place the main titles. And it was it was always a, a decision um, where we would put them, a very creative decision. But it was never sort of uh, like, here's the cold open. <laughs> so if that helps. Mm. So. No, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, 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 as a fan of the game, watching the very opening of the first episode was major. It was like you know, oh, this is not the game. As much as we want the, I mean, there's a large part of it that's capturing its essence. Yeah, but there's so much more to this adaptation than, than the game. Gentlemen, I got yeah. two more questions for you. Sure. You've been so generous with your time. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. first one, Last of Us related. Second one, just a chance to gush about stuff that's not Last of Us related. Uh, so the first question is, you know. We're we're over halfway through the show now. It's been getting raves. Everyone's really been loving it. For both of you, and we'll start with that and go to Tim. What are you most excited for for people to experience as the show continues on? Oh God! Well, no spoilers, of course. Yeah, exactly, but, exactly. But is there what what well, comes to mind? Well, what I can say is I, I've, I feel like I've been pitching to people. I played the game, like I say, day one. And I, I've always been a bit of a sort of part-time gamer. Um, and it always struck me as, as if you think you don't like video games, then play this. And, and I'd find myself, you know how you sometimes take on something like it's your own and you're, you're like a yeah. salesman for it. And you're like, just please, I'm begging you, just try this thing. It's so good. And there's a certain sort of person who I felt, even through that hard sales pitch, they're still like, ah, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm not going to do that. And so I, I kind of figured out uh, uh, how I would 
trick them into wanting to, to, to play it. And that was talking about the story and talking about some of the decisions that are made. And I did find myself to the sort of to certain people who I felt just weren't going to watch it. I would basically tell them how it ended. And that occasionally was the sort of thing that would be like, oh, okay, well, that is interesting. The one time so, spoiler spoiling is okay. If it really you know, and this is, it gets them in. Exactly. And, and it was a case of, to them, it's almost desperation because it's like they're just never going <laughs> to play it. And this is before the series. So I thought, you know, so I guess what I'm saying is I, I'm just really glad that there's a whole host of, of people who never would have known this story. People like my parents who... I was, you know, they're never going to pick up a PlayStation controller and they're now going to get to experience that story in full uh, on their own terms and take it on as their own and tell other people about it themselves. And I just, I love that fact. Tim? Wow. Um, I love the remainder of the season so much. Um, I'm especially excited personally because it was an opportunity for my assistant editor emily mendez to be promoted to a co-editor with me for the for, for the remainder of my work on the series um she is a stunningly talented person and there's uh the episode which is the left behind the title is available it, you the, it's yes. not a secret um it was very important for me to make sure that that story had proper representation. Um, and right. so bringing her into that story uh, and, 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 and having Craig be so generous as to allow it and say, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I want her voice in this too. And I, you know, I, I give my assistant editors a lot of um, mentorship. Um, I, that's like my thing uh, is I absolutely love to help people learn and, and to tell great stories because I think that, you know, if you don't do that, then you're going to get stories that suck. Um, and, you know, and I don't want that. Nobody wants that. So I'm yeah. hoping that we can create like wonderful, beautiful decoders as editors out there to make the, you know, the work of these artists like Eben and all these other wonderful people um, shine. Um, so having her and the voice that she brought to that episode was to me the thing I'm most excited about people seeing because she really did exquisite work to the point where you know craig was just like so how would you like to like help tim on this one and and, and i and i was like this is what we're looking for um so i'm really really proud of that but in, in, in the other thing is you know the work that bella ramsey and pedro pascal did is just it's monumental to me yeah i i, I mean i don't i i i i it's really hard to talk about because I was so inspired that I did nothing else really for those 16 months. I really looked at them every day. I listened to everything they said, even when it was between takes and they have this lovely rapport <laughs> with each other. If the, if, the, if the truck was being pulled back, you know, and the cameras were, were locked on and they were chatting, I would listen because they're such engaging individuals together. They have such a camaraderie between the two of them that it, it is inherently, it shows in the story that Craig has, 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 has molded with Neil. It's just this, it's, it's truly a wonder for me to see these two um, actors every day and to never be bored by them and to always have to sometimes 
fight to find what they're doing. And, you know, Pedro, so his nuances, sometimes I would have to look like really close to the screen just to look through his eyes to see where he was burying that small emotion. Um, mm. And it was just, it, it's a, it's a marvel for me as the editor to get to, to work with those things, to work with the material that, you know, Craig has uh, and Neil have written and to be able to work with collaborators who are equally um, motivated and and completely inspired to to help tell what we think is just a very human story um, in, in in a world where, you know, sometimes things can feel like, you know, things are not going really well right now. So to be able to 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 have a human connection, it's almost like, you know, yes, we're not in an apocalypse. But we're kind of close. So <laughs> <laughs> we're a little close. So and that's 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 what I hope people um, get to experience is the same joy that I did. So. Amazing. Gentlemen, last question. I always like to give artists I'm interviewing an opportunity to gush about everything else that they're watching or things that they've seen recently that has really captured their attention uh, that you think our readers should pursue. And so, Evan, and then Tim, is there a recommendation that you can give the nation uh, for for required viewing? It's tough, this, because it's like it's award season at the moment. So yeah, everyone's, yeah. everyone's making their lists and watching the same thing. So there are two, and I won't dwell on either, because they are both kind of in the awards situation. So this Just may gosh, be, just what do you, you love know. about them? I um, want to know. Well, After Sun. I, I found After Sun um, to be just so quietly devastating. I just Truly. sort of sat there like completely you know when something is just it, it just it i had a hundred percent faith in it, it like the, the subtlety of the storytelling the performances and as it slowly sort of dawned on me what it was doing it was like a magic trick that was so subtle but, but there and those final few i don't want to spoil it but the end um i just it yeah. it 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 fucked me up in the best, <laughs> most beautiful way. I, I oh, truly. It. Uh, you know, I've got a daughter now myself, and it just really makes you think about memory. It makes you think about what's happening in the present and the different things people are going through that you don't always realize. And, and it, it feels like a memory. I think that's the great magic trick of that movie is, is it felt like relatable to me, and yet the actual story isn't in any way relatable to, to my experience and my family, but... Oh God, that's that's my yeah, gushing. One of the best, uh, and one was, of the best final shots in years, right there. Shout yeah, out Palmer just Scott. wonderful. And that crossfade on his back, um, yeah. Oh my God, just just yeah. loved it. Um, so After Sun, and also Athena, uh, which not enough people have seen. Oh, it's a great movie on, on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Um, with some fabulous technical camera work that's incredibly story led i don't know how they got those performances amongst all that chaos uh, a bit of a mir miraculous movie i actually showed it I i'd been it was when athena came out i watched it two days in a row and i was actually on the set of a marvel thing that i did after the last of us and my director on this marvel thing um was like you keep talking about this goddamn movie and this goddamn opening <laughs> shot uh, and we had a we had a, a gap in in on a shoot day and I was like, I'm going to show you the opening shot, just so you understand why I'm going on about this. We had a little 10 minute break, put headphones on and he's got Netflix there, press play. And he's watching it. And at one point I like put my hand on his shoulder um, and he basically like batted my hand away <laughs> in, in, just because he was so 
into it because I, I was actually just going to say, oh, I think they're coming back you know, or something like that. And he batted yeah. my hand away and he just looked at me for half a second and he had tears running down his face. And and I once the 10 minute shot ended, I was like, you know, you OK? And he was just like, I've just never been so moved by something so quickly. And it, I don't know, that, that's Athena. Go watch Athena. Yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. And we, by the way, do look forward to uh, some of that Marvel work. Coming this year, hopefully. Very, very hopefully. I can't yeah. say anything <laughs> <about> <laughs> No, hopefully. Hopefully. We know their their slate's taking a yeah. bit of a rescheduling right now, but we're I, I believe yeah. Secret Invasion is basically confirmed for this year. So we're really we're really, really excited for that. Uh yeah. Tim, lay it on us. Well, it's it's funny because I like I said, I really didn't do anything else for the last 18 months. <laughs> Like literally wow. nothing else. I was so engrossed in this that very I, I saw very few films, very few TV series. Um, and so right now I have been doing that whole catch up. And I I know this is old and I know that everybody knows this, but I may have a little something to add. But when I watched Everything Everywhere All at Once just about a week ago, I lost my mind because <laughs> as an editor... I recognize oh, yeah. the degree of difficulty of doing that, but also the degree of difficulty in, in, in having something that is so sort of, I don't know, visible, be also so unbelievably emotional. So you yeah. the, the, the trick of that is almost impossible because normally emotion yeah. comes from invisibility um, mm. and, and, and being sort of uh, transported, whereas this was kind of like, we're going to come at you. You know, we're going to come right at you, but at the same time, we're going to come at you and then we're going to come into your little heart and then we're going to tear it out, put it back in, tear it out again, and then come at you again and then put it back and then tear it out. And I had, and I just last night listened to a, a podcast with the editor, Paul Rogers, speaking um, with his assistant editors and the respect he has for them was, and, and their whole contribution to it reminded me a lot of what is great about the filmmaking community is that it is about, you know, surrounding yourself with people who are passionate about what you're doing. Um, and I think passion within the, uh, the sort of the ranks of your crew is going to give you an elevated product no matter what. And so it, it, it speaks to the generosity of all of these uh, sort of craftspeople and just the way that, you know, modern filmmaking is starting to feel like a, a, a big family. Um, mm. And so just yeah. hearing that, and I would, I would, it's called The Art of the Cut is the podcast and listening to them talk about, and, and just the generosity of all of them in making this. I mean, I, I, I know I'm like 10 months out of date, but that's, <laughs> I was like, I was like, what have I just been watching? I'm like, well, there's only one thing and you're all going to know what it is because you've all seen it, but I have not. So, and so that would be the thing that I was just super moved by. And a lot of it was because I, I listened to the process and, and, and sort of, a, again, a human process. Yeah. VFX team of seven, by the way, on that. Yeah. Just yes. what, a, what a great way to do it. Exactly. Absurdly good. Yeah. Uh, gentlemen, you guys have been so generous with your time. Congratulations on this series. I speak for myself. The entire GVN family and a lot of our readers, when we say that we we feel this monumental feeling about this show with you guys as we're watching it. And it was so great to get a peek into the process, 
Um, this has been another edition of the GVM podcast. The Last of Us is available on HBO and HBO Max on Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Even uh, Evan Bolter, excuse me, Timothy Good. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Larry, very much. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.